the Catharsis magazine. This is the fiction podcast in collaboration with The Written Circle. The Written Circle is an independent digital publishing house that provides a platform for young writers to showcase their work. This short story, titled Wrong in Radford, is written by Liam Cogan. It is read by Melvin Kamau. Stay tuned till the end of the podcast to hear a short conversation between me and Liam discussing his story. There's an air of melancholy that encircles every heavy step made when coming back after a holiday. I suppose it doesn't help. Waking up to a beaming Italian sun and ending the day in the cold grey midlands. Radford looked the same as it always did in winter. Dark, cold and desolate. The odd group of ill-clad students occasionally flitted past, roaring and laughing as they stumbled and shivered in the icy wind. Most of them dressed in colours of luminescent variety, vests and shorts alike, with bright glittery paste smudged across their skins. I couldn't be sure if they were dressed that way so that it could be seen in the dark or merely for their own amusement. The rumbling of the engine drew my attention to the taxi as it shot up the long steep hill towards Radford. I glanced at the meter. Seemed about right. The driver looked back at me through the mirror, almost sensing my distrust. We locked eyes for a moment before I gave in to the awkwardness. Peering out the window again, I noted the sudden change. Instead of young, strangely dressed students, Afghan shopkeepers now swept the streets in their kept protags, bricking with each other in their native tongues. Afro-Caribbean youngsters hovered around, seamlessly bored, but still alert as they doled aimlessly. Whereabouts am I stopping, boss? The driver asked. I looked back at him through the mirror and checked the meter once more. Anywhere here is fine, thanks. The man pulled over, switching on his lights as he parked. He read the price aloud as I fumbled for my wallet. Why they do that? Drivers, I mean. It would be hard to miss those bright red numbers pinned below the mirror. Yet every driver is the same. Always reading it aloud, like they're calling the lottery. After handing him the exact change to the penny, he counted it, mumbling his dissatisfaction at the lack of tip. He expected it. They all do. He tapped his hand on the steering wheel, and waited for me to get out before speeding off. Stepping out, I caught a breeze to the face, whiplashing me in its bitterness as I swung the strap across my shoulder. My hamstrings were stiff from the plane and the cab ride, so I paused to stretch them before making my way down the road. My student halls were on a poorly lit path called Denman Street, An off-license on the corner provided the best source of light. But once you passed it, you walked in almost total darkness. An open, sorely abused park sat on the left as you entered the street, 
filled with all too familiar distasteful rumours that accompanied the sort of folk who lingered there. One glance was enough to take my attention away and quicken my stride. The sound of my lonely footsteps echoing down the narrow road. Voices emerged from the dark, but it was impossible to see. It's a strange feeling, hearing but not seeing, especially if you think they can see you, which I was afraid they could. My holes were visible now, lifeless and dull, but they were a pleasant sight as I sought to enter what seemed certain safety. From afar, one wouldn't think I lived in a student halls. Every night was the same. Always silence, no lights, nothing. It's like a hall for mutes. Silence doesn't bother me, of course. You learn to cherish the independence it brings. But sometimes it would be nice to hear some life in the place. Approaching the doors, I gawked at the rusting entrance dial on the door. It had been a while since I had to push in the code. I'd forgotten it a couple times and I had to ring my friend Francis to come let me in. He was always high and never on his phone, so the call was often my companion until he came and answered. A lesson I remedied tonight. I pushed open the hallway door and was instantly greeted by the smell of weed, a smell I'd missed in my time away from here. The faint sound of 90s hip-hop music playing in the distance crept through the closed door and down the corridor. Approaching his door, I hoped the music would be my ally as I sought to surprise him like I always did, hoping to catch him off guard. Barging his door, he turned, slowly, gazing at me with bloodshot eyes with nothing but blankness on his face. Of course, he's far too high to be surprised. Yo, what's going on? How was Italy? He croaked, his throat dry from the smoke. His room was a real drug den. Paraphernalia was littered across his desk. Pipes, bongs and empty plastic weed bags sat all over the floor. The window was open, as it always was, and after he spoke, he turned away from me, blowing a huge cloud of white smoke into the cold. Not bad, I replied. What you doing? Oh, nothing. Just trying to make this beat. But the Wi-Fi's gone down, and Nick's been out all day. He lit another nugget of weed on his pipe as it went from green to black. He spluttered a tad, breathed deeper, before releasing it once more into the dark night. Let me check, see if I can get it. Pulling my phone out, I waited for it to sign in automatically. It didn't. 
it wasn't on the list either. No, I'm not getting anything. Let me ask Jermaine. Leaving Francis's room, I knocked on Jermaine's door. His room was just opposite Francis, and he was sure to be in at this time. His footsteps grew louder as he approached the door, and it swung open seconds later. Hey, how you doing? Good holiday? He looked like he'd just woken up. Jermaine always did this thing when he answered the door. He would rub his face with the palm of his hand, as if rubbing woke his senses. Yeah, it was good, thanks. Sorry, did I wake you? No, no, I was just writing my essay. Ah, I see. I just wanted to ask if your Wi-Fi is working. It's not been working all day. I had to go to the library to do my research. Now I'm just writing. You as well. Alright, let's see where Nick is. Upon hearing the conversation, Francis came out of his room in hopes Nick responded. I heard Jermaine laugh, probably at the state of Francis's bloodshot eyes and stone-gazed face. There was no noise coming from Nick's room, so I knocked and listened for movement. There was no response. After a few seconds, I knocked again, this time more loudly and calling his name. Why did the Wi-Fi have to be in his room? I mean, I don't dislike the guy, but he's real weird. We all try to be friendly with him, but he doesn't want any of it. He waits for us to leave the kitchen before he goes in, just so he doesn't have to see us. One time, I came out the halls and saw him walking towards them. We were on the same side of the road, and he crossed. He crossed to the opposite side of the road, just so he didn't have to say hi to me. Losing patience, Francis stepped forward, knocking even louder, almost thumping the door. Nick, open the door, you fucking cunt. Jermaine laughed, and I turned in shock. What are you going to do if he answers the door now? Ask him why he switched his Wi-Fi off. But the cunt clearly is not in, or he would have answered the door by now. Francis tried to enter his room, but the door stood firm. Fuck's sake, where's this guy gone, man? He asked as he poked the heavy brown door with his foot. It's half ten. Surely he should be back soon, Jermaine said, hoping to quell the resentment. It fell silent for a second, with Francis's sigh the only thing bringing life to the corridor. We could call the caretaker, suggested Jermaine. Francis turned triumphantly. Yes, he gasped. He exited like a man possessed as he dashed away, the heavy door closing loudly behind him.
That was the thing about this place. All the doors were heavy. You couldn't leave quietly even if you tried. Even the carpet was so old, it didn't absorb the sound of footsteps anymore. It was more concrete than carpet. Where do you think he's gone? Asked Jermaine, breaking the silence. Probably library, he replied, as he leaned on the wall. What's that smell, by the way? I asked as I looked around. It's the toilet, replied Jermaine nonchalantly. I don't know. It doesn't smell like the toilet. The smell was hard to place. It was nothing I'd smelt before in a strange way. Though it was true, our flat was in a real state. After all, what can you expect with four male students living in one place? Entering the bathroom, I pulled on the cord and glanced around. Looking at the ever-growing mold on the ceiling and walls. Checking the toilet, I ignored the rusting stains and the brown marks of feces that resided on the bowl. It sure didn't smell pleasant, but the smell wasn't coming from there. The communal door opened and I turned to see Francis stood outside Nick's room once more. The caretaker is coming, he said impatiently as he paced up and down. Francis, can you smell that? I asked him. Smell what? He replied as he took a dragon-sized whiff of the air. That smell, I can't describe it, but it's not the toilet, is it? I can smell nothing, he said as he went back to pacing. Of course, he lives constantly with the smell of weed. He's forgotten what fresh air smells like, I thought. The communal door opened once more as George, the caretaker, bustled through with his infinite collection of keys. Evening, gents, he saluted as he looked for the key. He was a big guy, one of those muscle and fat guys. A real nice guy, but he sure loved to talk. He would catch you sometimes on your own, and if he knew you liked to work out, he would talk to you for half an hour about his gym routine and diet. Getting to places on time was hard when he was around. He pushed up his glasses and removed his baseball cap, wiped his head and placed it back on his head again. He always wore a cap. I think he was ashamed of his baldness in a way that often made me feel a fleeting flicker of sadness for the man. Right then, gents. You know where the wiper is, yeah? He asked as he glanced at Francis and I. I know where it is, said Francis confidently. All right, I'll open the door and you guys can go in. 
Is that okay? I asked, somewhat surprised. I'm legally not allowed to enter without the tenant's consent. No worries, I assured him as he unlocked the door. The door unlocked and he pulled it open, letting Francis and I in the room. Francis walked ahead of me and as we entered the room, the door shut behind us. The smell was here, in this room. Now, it was undeniable. Even Francis could smell it. The recognition of something foul entering one's nostrils is hard even for the hardest weed hitters to feign ignorance. Smell it now? I asked him. He held his nose and we both stood still on the spot gazing round the room. It was pure chaos with clothes and clutter littered everywhere. Leftover dishes and empty cans lay spread about the room. The duvet hanging half on the bed and half on the floor. It made me feel like a tidy person. There it is, over there, Francis said as he located the Wi-Fi box. He took a step forward and I followed, gazing at the various heavy metal posters that clung to the wall. All of a sudden, Francis's hand shot out, grasping my arm tightly and disrupting my tranquil, albeit nostril-disturbed state. What the fuck is that? He shouted as he pointed. Following the line of his finger, I froze. I'd never seen a stranger's sight. There, below the bed, and emerging from the hanging duvet, were a man's bare legs and feet, lying still on the floor. The upper part of his body was entirely hidden by the bed. Before I could muster the words to express my confusion, Francis pelted from behind me, running out the room. His movements sent a domino effect of reaction through me as I quickly followed, the pair of us dashing out, our eyes wide with shock. His legs are hanging from beneath the bed, Francis panted, as he motioned to inside the room. What? said the caretaker, as he screwed his face, perplexed. We walked in the room, and we saw his legs underneath the bed, I replied, more firmly. He pushed past us, and we turned to Germain who now looked stunned as he waited outside the door with us. From outside, the sound of the mattress being lifted, followed by the bed, was clear. Only seconds later, came the caretaker's voice on the phone to the ambulance. No, he's not breathing, he said flatly. The silence grew, 
and ebbed like the pulsing movement of a dying heart. Francis put his hands on his head. Mine had crept their way up my body and cupped my mouth, preventing air from escaping. Tremors ran through all of us. No, he's deceased. He's deceased, I can tell. Germain almost folded in two, the halves of him resembling a long chair. Francis semi-squatted in amazement, and I paced up and down, my hands running through my hair. Looking at Francis, I could see the tears glistening in his eyes. We said nothing to each other. Each of us waited in total silence for what seemed a lifetime. Eventually, the caretaker came out and shut next door. He spoke, breaking the silence that had thus continued. Alright guys, don't panic. It's going to be okay. The ambulance is on its way. He's definitely dead, Francis burst out. Yeah, he had the same look in his eyes my dad had. That's how I knew, you see. I've seen that look before in a man's face, said the caretaker. So casually, so unmoved, that I was taken aback. He folded his arms and the corridor returned to silence. Just like that. We all stood there, each one of us struggling to form words to express our feelings. Occasionally, the caretaker would check his wristwatch to see how long it would take the ambulance to come. The silence continued. Only the sound of the caretaker chewing gum stopped that corridor from being soundless. His phone rang, and he rushed out towards the communal door. Wait in the kitchen. The ambulance is here. I nodded, and we each made our way into the kitchen, where the silence was like that of an Italian monastery. Holy fuck, Francis said. I just... He broke into laughter. I looked at Jermaine in confusion. I'm sorry. It's not that it's funny at all. I'm just so shocked I don't know what to say. Then, before I knew it, Jermaine laughed too. Had everyone gone mad? Jermaine covered his face with his hands and recollected himself. As we sat there in the silence of the room, I heard voices in the corridor. Muffled voices and clattered followed until the door to the kitchen opened. It was Phil, the resident hall manager. He was a nice enough guy, but I never spoke to him much. 
He was one of those sarcastic types, a real smartass that thought he'd made gold in his career. He loved it when students made a thing of him, though I'd never give him that satisfaction. As he stood in the doorway, I saw, behind him, the trolley and the white sheet on Nick's body as he rolled him out. What a strange sight. Nick had long brown hair and parts of his hair sprung out beneath the sheets. His nose was even visible as it pointed softly under the white sheet like a dolomite from above. The blue ambulance lights were flashing outside the halls and through the kitchen window. And by now, a small crowd had gathered as they watched his body wheeled into the back of the van. I know you boys have been through a lot tonight, but I need you to be patient. I've cleared a corridor upstairs for tonight as you won't be able to sleep here whilst they investigate said Phil, his hands in his pocket as he stood over us. Thanks, I said half-heartedly. Thanks, Jermaine echoed. Now, the police are here and they're going to come and ask you some questions. No need to panic, just answer them as best as you can, okay? I nodded. And so did the other two. Phil opened the door and a policeman and policewoman entered. They nodded at the resident manager who shut the door behind him as he left. Straight away, the man stepped forward first, occupying the center of the room as he too stood above us. The woman waited in the back standing by the kitchen worktop. She glanced around, taking in the room and his occupants. He didn't. He pulled out a pencil and a notepad before looking up at us. My name is PC Galloway and this is my colleague PC Blakemore. We're just going to ask you some questions. Okay? We all nodded. How well did you know Nick? None of us knew him well at all. He stayed in his room most of the time. We hardly ever spoke to him. I said, my voice shaky. The others echoed my sentiment and he proceeded to scribble on his pad. He looked longingly at his notes before looking up. Did he ever have any visitors round that you saw? Friends? Girlfriend? We all shook our head in unison. In the six months we'd lived here, we'd never seen a soul visit him. Did he sound 
all look depressed. Did you ever see any signs he was being bullied perhaps? Not that I know of, I said. Never, said Germain. Francis shook his head. What happened? Did he kill himself? Asked Germain. That's yet to be determined. He responded icily. A knock sounded on the door. Excuse me, he said, as he and his colleague left the room. We were left there, sat down in a black hole of silence and confusion. Germain and Francis broke the quiet and made some small talk. As I continued to stare blankly ahead, trying to take in the situation. This morning, I'd woken up in sunny Italy, surrounded by loved ones. And now, look at me. I guess that's just life. You can never get too comfortable. Fortune can change in a flash. The door opened again and they came in. Once more, assuming their prior positions. Where were you all last night? He asked as he sat down. The question surprised me. It felt more of an accusation than a question. In my room, said Francis. Same here, echoed Germain. He turned to me. I was in Italy with family. When did you get back? He pressed. Two hours ago. A silence came then as he resumed his scribble. Looking around the room, I saw the woman watching me before she switched her gaze to the other two. Who was it that found the body? Asked PC Galloway, bringing my attention back to him. It was Francis and I. Maybe I should let the others talk first, I thought. So you two were here last night? He said, as he glanced from Germain to Francis. They both nodded and mumbled. Did you hear anything out of the ordinary? I heard some weird sounds coming from his room, but I couldn't tell what it was. The officer straightened, rising by what seemed a few inches. What did it sound like? He asked. I'm not sure, like a cat wheezing or something. Did you hear it too, Jermaine? He asked, deflecting the attention over to him. Uh, I think so, yeah. I heard something strange. The officer stared for a moment as the tension grew. Francis could hardly keep still. 
bouncing his leg relentlessly as he buckled under the constable's inquisition. What did you do when you heard the noise? Francis looked at Jermaine and looked back at the officer. Nothing. And you? asked P.C. Galloway as he turned to Jermaine. Jermaine shook his head. Nothing. So you both ignored it. Now he had gotten really uncomfortable. My heart raced for them both, slowly melting under the constable's verbal assault. I guess so, admitted Francis, as he scratched his head awkwardly. A heavy silence followed, with only the frantic sound of a pencil, scratching paper, occasionally filling the room. Your roommate died from an insulin overdose. He suffered a seizure, which explains the noise you both heard and ignored. He died shortly after. Francis and Germaine both gasped, speechless at what they heard. I couldn't help but wonder if I'd been there. Would I have done the same? Or could I have saved him? It was impossible to know. Any man can name himself a hero when not presented with the challenge. Being there is always a different story. But still, one can only hope. Your rooms will be searched as by procedure, he said, as he looked at Francis. You will be allowed to return to your rooms tomorrow night if you choose. In the meantime, you're free to vacate to the rooms provided upstairs. What happens next? asked Germain. Can we stay up there permanently? I'm not too sure I want to be coming back down here. You'll have to speak to your hall manager for that. What about the room? asked Francis. Will someone else move in? His father will come first thing in the morning to collect his belongings. And what about his mum? asked Jermaine. The constable's lips curled as he answered. His mother died last year, I'm told. It was just him and his father. My heart did a somersault into what felt like an empty concrete pool as his words hit home. Francis and Germain looked like two men who'd seen the horrors of war. Stricken yet hollow. Ashen yet numb. Perhaps the deflated attitude a mechanism to cope the trauma they'd faced.
they kept their eyes on the floor and we all made our way upstairs, trudging slowly like a defeated platoon. We got to our temporary rooms for the night. The corridor had been uninhabited, so it was clean and fresh. The only pleasant thing the evening had to offer thus far. Before we retired to our separate rooms, there was a question that had to be asked. Will you guys go speak to his father tomorrow? And say what? asked Jermaine. I don't know, I said. Nah, I don't want him to blame me, said Francis. I could hardly blame them for thinking that after what they had been through. Do you think we were wrong? asked Francis. I looked at him and saw both of them watching me, waiting for a reply. Wrong in what sense? I responded, though I knew what he meant. Do you think we should have done something? Gone and checked. Knocked on the door if we had to. It's impossible to say. You're not to blame for this. You couldn't have known. I answered suddenly. Wanting to bomb them, not burn them. I mean, how many times do you hear weird noises in student halls, right? All the time. I'm not suddenly going to think someone's dying, am I? Blurted Jermaine, almost on the brink of tears. No, of course not. Of course not. Try and get some sleep if you can. I'll see you in the morning. Good night, mate said Francis as he turned. Entering my room for the night, I heard Germain wish me good night. I responded from inside and got under my duvet, which I had taken from my room and laid it over me. The mattress had no sheets, something which usually irritates me, but for tonight it would suffice. I had a feeling sleep won't come anyway. Francis and Germain continued to mumble in the corridor. I heard them console one another, each one telling the other they weren't to blame. And even if it happened ever again, they'd be the first to respond. It was a lesson learned, Germain said. What a lesson, I thought. Takes a guy dying for a lesson to be learned. What about his poor father, driving up tomorrow to collect his belongings, knowing he was driving up to a dead son? The thought saddened me. I couldn't imagine that man's pain. First, his wife... Then, 
not a year later. Yes, son. That's enough to make most hardened men quit. Thinking about it brought tears to my eyes, and I closed them hard, hoping to stop the outpour. My mind wandered restlessly throughout the night as I tossed and turned, hoping sleep would come, but it never did. At last came the beginnings of dawn, so I rose. Checking my phone for time, 7.20, my scream said. A reasonable enough hour to rise. Grabbing my bag, I began packing. Enough for a week or so. It would be best to be away from here for a while. Come back when the smell has gone. So I wouldn't be constantly reminded of what happened last night. As my packing drew to an end, I found a black band I hadn't seen before. Then, an idea struck. Opening my door slowly, I stepped out, shutting it gently so as not to wake the others, if they weren't awake already. Tiptoeing down the corridors and stairs, I made my way to our corridor on the ground floor. The smell was still there, lingering, just as strong as ever. Despite the fact it had been hours since the body had been removed and the ambulance had cleaned. Holding my breath, I walked through his door and hesitated as I touched the handle. I twisted and pushed and to my relief, I found it had been locked. I took out the black band and tied it to the door handle for his father to see. It wasn't much, of course, but it was something, and I wanted his father to know we mourned him in our own way. I headed back upstairs to grab my bags and made my way to Francis's door to say a final goodbye. I knocked gently on his door to see if he was awake. Yeah, came a faint voice. You awake? I said as I pushed the door open. I couldn't sleep, he said as he rubbed his eyes. Neither could I. I'm leaving for a few days. I'm going back home. Same here. I booked my coach last night, he said as he yawned. Jermaine's leaving too. Looks like we all had the same idea. After saying my last goodbyes, I made my way downstairs. I thought once more about Nick's dad coming to the place his son spent his final moments on earth. How he died alone instead of surrounded by his loved ones. And here we were, vacating, so that when his father came, 
he too would be alone. He would value the privacy, I told myself over and over, as if repeating it would make it all the truer. By now, I was on the ground floor, and I pushed open the corridor door, whereupon I just stood, ridged in the doorway, staring at the black band I tied round the handle. Looking longingly around the corridor, the images of the previous night flashed in my mind. A heavy sigh followed, and I turned, opening the hall's door and stepping out into the cold. Somehow the light of day did not cheer me. With a heavy heart, I turned right and made my way down Radford Road. Hi Liam, thank you for doing this. Yep, thank you very much for having me on. Right, so in the interest of time, I think we can just jump straight into the questions. We really enjoyed reading your story, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Um, okay, so uh, I think what I wanted to ask you, and this was something that I think a lot of people after they read the story would want to ask you, how did you write something like this? Was there something that inspired you to write something? Because this is a dark topic. So what, what led you to write something like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for a lot of the readers who probably won't know, um, this was actually inspired by true events. Okay. So I was actually living um, at the university halls at the time when these real incidents happened. And... A couple of months later, after the events, that's when it came to me as an idea that maybe I could do it as a story, um, yeah. as, a, as a short story. Um, it's something that took some time, but I remember speaking about it to one of my tutors at the university at the time, and she said that she'd be interested to give it a look over um, if I did complete it as a draft, and, and, and that's kind of how it went. But yeah, sadly, it was inspired by real events. Um, so it wasn't just something that was born fresh out of my imagination, so to speak. Right, that's that's really interesting and yeah. also really traumatic. But yeah. um, throughout the story, you know, before we even come to the actual death, that is the premise of the story, there is, there is a deep sense of melancholy in the story. It is, you know, whether it is in the streets, of, you know, when you're taking the cab, in the hallway, as you enter the hallway, in your conversation with your other flatmates, there is this impediment of gloom throughout the story. But when you address the death, you kind of you you tend to steer away from imposing your emotions on the reader. At least that was what I as a reader thought. Despite the grim theme, you make the choice of not letting your narrative be flooded with your own emotions or even your friends' emotions who also play a part in, in the story. So there are a lot of unsaid expressions and unsaid emotions that float around. But you let the reader take their own stand. You let them decide what they want to feel, how they want to feel, and how they want to come to that. Was this a conscious decision that you made um, uh, whilst you were writing the story? Or was this um, something that you experienced yourself and so you wanted it to be the same way for the reader? Yeah, uh, interesting question. So... For the, for the first part of the question, in terms of the melancholy of the story, um, I think, you know, when 
when I, when this event occurred, it, we're talking around February here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking around February 2014. And mm-hmm. so if you know the Midlands of England and you know what England's like in winter, you know that it's very dark, it's very cold, it's very gloomy. The area Radford, um, which is mentioned as the title of the story, Wrong in Radford, Radford itself is a, is an area just outside of the city centre of Nottingham and it's, it's not the nicest of areas. Right. And the halls that we were living in also weren't the nicest of halls. They were very dingy, um, very dark and old and... And so all that coupled with how I was feeling at the time, I was also going through some personal things at the time. Um, It was the first time in my life that my then current girlfriend had left the city to do some work experience in London. And I remember feeling this kind of loneliness also, Mm -hmm. um, coupled with being in this dingy flat in this not nice area. So that definitely, I think, spoke a lot as to how I was feeling at the time, to what my mental psyche was like also at the time. So that probably constituted to a lot of the melancholy in the story. Um, as, As for the second part of the question... Yeah, I, I don't think I wanted to impose anything. I, I, I wanted to almost report it, almost in a journalistic sense, as how I saw the mm. events unfolding that evening and how it appeared to me. Um, and what I tried to do in that story is is tell it um, to the most truthful point that I saw it unfold, you know, all, all the way to how Francis and Jermaine are interacting compared to the police officers and... And, and yeah, and so I left it to the reader to um, to digest it as as they will, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So, in that sense, then did did the writing of the story help you kind of come to terms with what had happened? Was it was it that did the writing help you deal with it to to understand the trauma and kind of overcome it in some way? I think so. I, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about creatives and artists and finding almost therapy. In fact, I um, I'm actually a good friend of mine here in London um, is a therapist and his whole take on therapy is therapy and creativity. And I've, um, I've helped him out once or twice um, because he's very interested in the power of creativity and how it can be therapeutic. So I think a lot of artists and a lot of creatives will speak um, to that effect. Um, I mean, for me, my immediate response, and I think our immediate response, is, as you can see in the story, was to just leave the premises um, for the initial healing, for the initial escape from the trauma. But I think um, as time went on and I reflected in it and it lingered in my mind, I think, yes, that was my, um, um, that my catharsis, so to speak, sorry to quote the, uh, the name of the magazine, but... That was my approach, and, and, you know, writing it as a short story was, I think, yeah, a step for me uh, in doing that. Right, and did you think that it helped you then? I, 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 think, I think it did, because, you know, oftentimes I think when things are traumatic, and I think I speak, you know, for, for a lot of people, we don't necessarily always process trauma that well. Sometimes we, we store it in a box and lock it and throw the key away and, and, and we don't want to go there and we don't want to tap into that. Um, unfortunately, artists are told to do the opposite. You know, a lot of artists do tap into that place. And, um, and, and I think, you know, me 
writing that story was me kind of coming to terms with it and really facing it head on, mm. um, so to speak. So I, I, I think it did um, help me. You don't, okay. This kind of, just to take off from what you said about how artists um, are usually told to tap into their traumatic experiences, I think uh, the theme of death is is widespread and it can be interesting to read it as well as write it. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that uh, someone has to have gone through the experience of some kind of trauma, some kind of death, they have to have experienced the death of a near one to be able to flesh out a story surrounding it or do you think it can be done even without that? Okay, yeah, very interesting question. I think this one... This one, I think, will split camps with a lot of people because I think, you know, there's a lot of writers that will stick to the old adage of, you know, write what you know. Right. And then there might be some other writers that will say, you know, actually, no, imagination can take its course. Me personally, um, if I'm just answering personally to myself, I think anything that you've experienced or lived through can only help. Um, so, for example, in my other writing, I've always usually tended to write a lot of things that I may have experienced or have been close um, to, to me, whether not necessarily directly by my own experience, but by maybe somebody that I know, a friend or a relative. Um, but on the other hand, that's not to say that, you know, you have to necessarily have experienced something to, to, to write it. I mean, in terms of death, sure, it helps. But if we expand beyond death... Um, I think if re if the research is done correctly, um, it's possible. For example, you know, in my next project, I'd like to do with AI and universal basic income and what might lie ahead for us as a human species, you know. And that's taken a lot of research, and I'm doing research. But research and then imagination, I think, has to be combined. You know, there has to be room for, the, for both of them to play. Um, but, yeah... I, but I think it's possible. I, I, I just think sometimes as creatives, as artists, and I think this goes for actors and musicians, sometimes we might not want to do the foundation work, um, the, the groundwork. We want to maybe get to the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when I attended the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama here in London, because I was an actor also alongside my writing, our tutor said something that hit me a lot. She said that the creative process, whether you're a musician... Um, a writer, an actor, yeah. there, there is a foundation to be done. And she compared it actually to sports. You know, if you think about football or boxing or, you, you know, tennis, I, I think when athletes start playing sports, there's a lot of foundation work that goes into it before they get to do the fun stuff, the games, the matches. And I think that's the same for the creative process. You know, before singers sing, you know, there's a lot of um, vocal work that gets done, like stretching, warm-up of the chords, of the lungs, um, before you get to the fun singing part. And that's the same with writing and acting. Um, but it's just sometimes as artists and creatives, we can be a little bit um, lazy, I think. But, you know, it's not our fault. We want to do the fun things. We want to do the magical things. But um, back to the original question anyway, I do certainly think it's possible if, if the work is done. Okay.
um i think i think that is that is just relieving for a lot of people because nobody wants to undergo the trauma but everybody wants to be able to write about it well right so yeah. i i suppose that's that's a nice um that's a happy answer for most people <laughs> but um yeah thank you so much for agreeing to do this and thank you so much for giving us your story and it was great talking to you we really enjoyed it and we look forward to what you have to write next Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, I'm honestly very honored to have my short story on the on the magazine. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Written Circle has curated collections and they publish new authors. If you wish to know more about their work, please visit their website at www.theridencircle.com.